What does the Lun mean? L-U-N. I don't actually know. The floater. Good question. The floater. Yeah. <laughs> the poo that won't go away. <laughs> yeah. That could be a Bond film. The, the turd that, that wouldn't flush. flush. finger. Push it down. But make sure you're wearing gloves. <laughs> So right, let's uh, count down, yeah. Final countdown. Hello and welcome to That Was Genius. <laughs> I think that, that's a suitable count in. I can sync us up to that. How are you doing, Tom? Excellent. I'm doing very well, thank you. Super. Yeah, how, how's your week been, Sam? How's your week of research been? More importantly, I don't give a shit what you've been doing elsewhere. <laughs> My week of research, Tom, has been, I'll be brutally honest because it's going to show up later when I start talking, my week of research has been brief. My research week started about two and a half hours ago for this podcast. (laughs) Excellent. Two and a half hours. That's more than enough time to fill an hour long podcast, Sam. A two and a half to one ratio, I think, is ideally what we're aiming (laughs) for there. Time efficient, if nothing else. And of those two and a half hours, how long did it take you to decide on a topic? Two hours, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been preparing for half an hour. No, no, um, I've known what I wanted to do all week, but I just haven't got around to actually doing it until this morning. And it it was down to two. So I've researched both and chosen which one I want to do. Very good. Very good. Put the other one in the back pocket for a future podcast. Oh, well, it's already, it's tucked away securely in my back pocket, being gently warmed by my anus. Good. Uh, you're, you're a what? My anus. <laughs> you're, you're, you're a noose. Okay. Is that like couscous or quinoa? Is that a middle class way of referring to your anus? Yes, it is. Excellent. It sounds like a trendy baby's name, doesn't it? <laughs> Little baby anus. <laughs> Little baby. <laughs> Little baby. <laughs> This is darling, darling Anus. <laughs> and this is this lady, this little lady over clitoris. Clitoris, my darling clitoris. <laughs> yes. Mm. <laughs> Maybe not. My cousin's got a lovely, lovely girl. Lovely girl. Her name's Chlamydia. Chlamydia. <laughs> Chlamydia definitely sounds like a Victorian baby's name. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be Fanny Chlamydia, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> Fanny Chlamydia Bottomley. Born 1782, died 1844. <laughs> Fanny Chlamydia Bottom Thrush. <laughs> <laughs> bottom Bottom Thrust. Thrush, but also thrust. <laughs> oh, bottom Thrush. Oh, Bottom Thrush sounds a bit uncomfortable, it doesn't does. it? Fungal ass crack. <laughs> Was her brother. <laughs> <laughs> the famous Irish poet. Fungal ass crack. With his classic romanticist poem, O'er Wandering Hills of Kerrygold. Fungal ass crack. Excellently done. Well done. So there are two more characters to add to our uh, That Was Genius cornucopia of strange people and creatures. Yes. For anyone listening in for the first time, hello and welcome. This, uh, well, I I say this isn't how we usually start the podcast. It is. There's usually several minutes of rambling before we get going, but welcome to That Was Genius, a podcast in which me, myself, Sam, and my giggling co-host in New Zealand, Tom, discuss history stories on a topic each week. And what was this week's topic, Tom? Innovations, or was it inventions? Innovations or inventions, whatever. Whatever. (laughs) It's a highly structured podcast, this. And how have you found this one, Tom? How's your research gone? I overcame a few hurdles, Sam, 
there were a few hiccups in my research. The document I originally wanted to discuss, I couldn't find. So it's a document called Deribus Bellicis. Have you heard of that? I haven't. Yeah, so it's a 4th to 5th century, not quite sure, Roman document detailing lots of potential military innovations that the Romans could use to get the upper hand against some of their military enemies. So there's a rather bizarre idea in this document, which is an ox-powered paddle boat, basically. So an ox-powered paddle boat. And I'm not quite sure how you'd convince an, an ox to sit in a paddle boat. I mean, it must be a very accommodating ox. It must be quite an accommodating paddle boat. Ox aren't particularly small. Yeah, and I think there are a number of a number of oxen in this paddle boat. Yeah, very bizarre. So yeah, imagine that trying to introduce an ox to a paddle boat. I could give it a go. I'm not usually one to a paddle boat, but um, hey, I'll give it a go. I usually prefer just chewing grass, but um. Where are we going to go for a pedal? On the Oxbow Lake? <laughs> oh, yeah, very good. No, well, well done, well no. Done. It's well a done. terrible joke, and I'm very sorry. <laughs> so I came across a similar invention, which was a, a horse-powered railway locomotive, which was a railway locomotive uh. with a treadmill instead of a steam engine that horses walked on, which to me seems somewhat pointless because horses surely could just walk on the ground. That's what I was thinking. Which is where, yeah. which is where they started. <laughs> yeah, you could just focus on building a road. Yes, Yes, instead you of could. a railway. Yeah, you could get rid of the yeah. whole railway thing. I mean, for a start, railways were first off powered by horses who were just walking on the ground. But there's a reason that railways were called iron horses, and that's because they were like horses but better and made of metal. So an entirely pointless invention. And at the same time, I also, as an honourable mention, I went down the route of looking at some of the strangest patents that have ever been lodged. Right. Genuinely, Tom, there is a patent lodged for a self-propelled ass-kicking machine. Self-propelled? Ass-kicking machine. And and what you do, Tom, right. it's a bit like an exercise bike. You sit on the thing and you crank with your hands and then a paddle covered in shoes uh, repeatedly kicks your ass. <laughs> right. You know, Sam, I've had periods in my life where I felt like I'm on that machine. <laughs> Indeed. Who would that appeal to you? I'm, I'm, I'm confused. I believe it was supposed to be massaging. Right. <laughs> okay. And I don't know who or when the need arose to paddle your own buttocks with shoes, but there was clearly someone who was into that. And they actually spent the money on legal fees uh, to get it patented. Yes. Uh, Would you also believe that someone has patented the method of swinging on a swing? Strictly speaking, you have to pay royalties if you ever use a swing. Right. And someone has also patented the idea of a pyramid as a tomb. Which I, I, some, I, it rings a bell from history. Someone using pyramid-shaped tombs, but I can't think who I came or where. across it as well. I think <laughs> I, yeah, I came across one of those. Yeah. And who patented this? I don't actually know. Was it? I don't actually know who. It patented wasn't an it. Egyptian dude, was it? From sort of seven thousand BC. It wasn't. No. I for some reason I think they were a bit more open source about the entire thing. No, it was an American guy in the nineteen sixties, but whose name I can't remember. I had it on a sheet of paper and I've lost it now. <laughs> and do you think he was one of those guys that was just great fun? You know, he was always coming out with japes. You yes. Know? And it was like at dinner parties. He was like, you'd never guess what I painted did. And everyone's like, yeah, well done. Fuck off. Twat. <laughs> and he probably has novelty ties and bow ties that spin around when you twist his nipples or something. Yeah. Wanker. Painting the pyramid is definitely the action of someone who has a piano key tie. Sam, you answered that like you have one. <laughs> Let me just take this off. 
He says removing his trousers. <laughs> right. Right. Enough bitterness, Tom. Let's get on with it, because I want to know what you're actually talking about today. I mean, I don't have much of a clue what you're on about most of the time, but... You were kind enough to listen. Attempt to listen. And rude enough to edit it out. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk about a chap who I have actually stumbled across in a previous podcast. I um, I read a bit of Vitruvius. My only knowledge of Vitruvius comes from a fascinating history podcast that I listened to once with an incredibly charismatic and well-endowed host. Who what was his name? His name was Tom. Tom. Yes, I think I've listened to the same one. He's got a co-host, hasn't he, with a, just a deep, resonant, Gut. empowering voice. <laughs> After the disappointment of realising that this document, De Rebus Bellicis, was actually a bit shit... I kind of gave up a little bit when chapter two was entitled On Ways of Making Posts, um, which I'm going to be honest, didn't really <laughs> grab me by the knickknackers and swing me around the room. It, it kind of didn't really catch me, that, that chapter title. So I thought I'd give up on that document. Uh, so yes, I settled on Vitruvius. So who have you settled on, Sam? Well, Tom, I was going to possibly do Hero or Heron, depending on how you pronounce or translate his name, yes. on Alexandria. He was an amazing inventor who invented all kinds of wonderful and beautiful gadgets and things. Uh, but I decided, again, he might be a bit well-known. Anyone who likes ancient Greece yeah. has probably heard of him. He, he invented early versions of the vending machine and steam engines and the sliding door as well, the automatic sliding door. Absolutely incredible inventor. Oh. I thought a few people might have heard of him already. So I've gone completely the other way, and I've abandoned the classics altogether, and I'm doing some of the stranger and more or less successful inventions of the Soviet Union that people might not have heard of. Ooh. You like Soviet history, don't I you? I bloody love it, Tom. I am absolutely mm, yeah. obsessed with the USSR. I've been to Moscow a couple of times and had a wonderful time, and I like going around all of the old Soviet museums of crumbling, rotting equipment and scientific instruments and things and just pointing at them. And, and in my cupboard I have a Soviet military uniform, and I am absolutely unashamed of it. <laughs> Do you strut around in it sometimes? Not nearly as often as I'd like. I might have to do it after this. Yeah, just down the street as well. Yeah, absolutely, with the Soviet national anthem blaring out behind me. <laughs> I can't speak Russian, but it's a great national anthem. As you enter your house, is there a massive poster, a massive painting of you glaring off into the distance with fucking covered in workers medals. behind you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> holding hammers. Yeah, absolutely. I've got an electric screwdriver in one hand. And a, and a 10 mil socket in the other. Excellent. Why a 10 mil socket? <laughs> I don't know. It's just the first thing that pops into my head. Fair enough. Right, let's flip something because time is marching on and we've got a podcast to do. Let's go. Let's go. Let's flip a thing. I'm going to flip a CD today, Tom. Flip that CD. Flip that CD. What album is it? Let me just pick something out of my selection that people will have heard of. Fat of the Land by The Prodigy. There you go. That'll do. <clears throat> <clears throat> <laughs> oh, that's a different album, isn't it? I haven't got a fucking clue what you were doing. I thought you were having some. <laughs> I thought you were having some kind of attack. <laughs> would you like the Would you like the side with the album art on it, or the side with the music on it? I would like the side with the album art on it, please, Sam. 
There we go. That's a broken CD. And you've got the side with the album art on it, Tom. Which would you rather do? Um, I'm in an easygoing mood today, Sam. What would you rather do? I'm going to let you go first, Tom. So I alluded to the fact that I've read a bit of Vitruvius for our pilot episode. Sorry, I correct myself. It was our Eureka Moments episode where we gave a little bit of background on Archimedes and the original Eureka Moment. That account of Archimedes streaking through the streets of Syracuse is actually from Vitruvius. What surprised me at the time when I was reading about Archimedes in the works of Vitruvius was how small a section of the of the book is dedicated to this anecdote of um, Archimedes streaking through the streets of Syracuse, an incident that's very, very well known. It only takes up a couple of chapters. And as far as I'm aware as well, it's only referred to in Vitruvius's De Architectura. Ah. Vitruvius's book, which he's most famous for, and I don't think we have any other works from him, is called De Architectura, which translates roughly as the 10 books on architecture. That's what it's kind of more commonly known as in English. And this book is from the first century BC. And Vitruvius himself was basically an engineer, an engineer and an architect. And back in this period of history, a Roman engineer was basically someone who's very good at building stuff. They didn't necessarily specialise in niche types of engineering like they would do today. It was just someone who was good at building shit. I like that. Simpler times. Simpler times. Today I shall build the apartment block. Tomorrow I build the water wheel. Very nice. Is that what Italians... uh, That's what Italians speak like. That's what Romans spoke like, do you think? I would like to think they did. I would like to think so. So it's a very, very influential book. Very, very influential. Um, You may have heard of the Vitruvian Man. Have you heard of the Vitruvian Man? I think so, yes. Fill me in, Tom. I can't from New Zealand. I wish I could. (laughs) Uh, um, Vitruvian... (laughs) So the Vitruvian Man, you will definitely know it. It's the Da Vinci image of the chap in the square in the circle, the Uh, ideal proportions of a human. Yes, yes. So that's the Vitruvian Man, and that's because it's from Vitruvius. The ideal proportions of a human with four arms and four legs. It's just, it's fashioned giving us more unachievable goals, isn't it, Tom? I know. It's creating nothing but body dysmorphia. Oh, I can't grow extra arms like the Vitruvian Man. I haven't got massive hands like Michelangelo's David. It's just ridiculous, isn't it? These bloody... Renaissance wankers. <laughs> so, <laughs> talking of Michelangelo, um, he was also heavily influenced by Vitruvius, and that's because Vitruvius talks a lot about ideal proportions in architecture, in humans, and various things like that. So Vitruvius was an engineer and probably served, in fact, almost certainly served under Julius Caesar in the late, late Republic um, as an engineer, probably in places like Gaul um, during Caesar's campaigns. And so he had first-hand experience as an artillery man. So this is where we move on to the chapters of this book that are dedicated to siege equipment or um, sort of military, what would you call it? Materiel. Gif gaff. <laughs> siege engines and uh, artillery artillery equipment. That's <laughs> what I was looking hell. for. This is a struggle, isn't it? Siege <laughs> engines and artillery equipment. Bloody hell. How many chapters? Let's have a look. So we've got 10, 11, 12, 13... Uh, we have got oh fifteen. So there are there are five chapters of this book dedicated to siege equipment. Very interesting, Sam. So chapter ten, Sam, goes into details about catapults or scorpions. And I tell you what, Sam, this is truly riveting, riveting stuff. This man Vitruvius, oh wow, he could weave. A wonderful world, a glorious, colourful world with his words. That was words. some wonderful wibblance, Tom. A wonderful world of wibblance. 
<laughs> like a fat person running. There's wibblance everywhere. <laughs> Let me read this out to you, Sam. This is beautiful. The height and breadth of the capital itself must then conform to the size of the holes. The boards at the top and the bottom of the capital, which are called peritretti, should be in thickness equal to one hole and in breadth to one and three quarters, except at their extremities, where they are equal one hole and a half. The side posts on the right and left should be four holes high, excluding the tenons, and five twelfths of a hole thick, the tenons half a hole. The distance from a side post to the hole is one quarter of a hole and is also a quarter of a hole from the toll of the post in the middle. The breadth of the post in the middle is equal to one hole and one-eighth. The thickness to one hole. Fucking beautiful. I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> wow. I can see why you chose this guy, Tom. I know. And when I read that chapter, Sam, I thought, fuck, I've just stumbled across <laughs> another one. Um, another incredibly boring text. I'm so glad you shared it with us. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, yeah. Edit. Vitruvius is notorious <laughs> for being... Yeah, edit or whole thing out. So Tom's section this week is five minutes long. <laughs> oh, fucking so early. So Vitruvius... Vitruvius is no... <laughs> Fuck you. Right? All right. That's how we're playing it today, are we? We're heckling each other. Vitruvius has a reputation for being quite hard to follow. And as we know with classical texts, they kind of went a bit AWOL during the Middle Ages and then get rediscovered during the Renaissance. And unfortunately, in that period in the Middle Ages, they get copied and translated and copied by monks who don't actually understand the original text and they're just copying the symbols and so on and so forth. And um, what has happened, I think, is a lot of the diagrams have been lost. So you have these texts that are very difficult to follow and there are no diagrams to help people, which is why, incidentally, something like the Vitruvian Man by Da Vinci, there are various attempts to to draw the ideal proportions if you google vitruvian man you'll, you'll see various different attempts by different people during the late middle ages and the sort of early modern period to try and draw the vitruvian man and that's because you know people are trying to interpret the text don't you worry though sam there is going to be more fun stuff chapter 11 is about ballistae really truly riveting stuff again quite difficult to comprehend i'm going to skip through chapter 11 <laughs> suffice to say that vitruvius highlights that the torsion baluster were developed under alexander the great and we're going to come on to this a little bit later don't worry it does get more more fun chapter 12 is about the stringing and tuning of this. catapults where's the fun <laughs> it's coming don't worry i just want to build it up so chapter 12 is the stringing and the tuning of catapults I'm sort of imagining a, a line of catapults aiming at some fortified Gaul town, <laughs> sort of being strummed to ride of the Valkyries like in um, Apocalypse Now. <laughs> You've just got some plinky-plonky Roman legionaries just kind of gently strumming their ballistas. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, missus. Oh, you never guess what they were doing. They were strumming their ballistas, weren't they? Oh, bloody Romans. <laughs> oh, he shot his bolt. <laughs> oh. You should probably explain for our audience, anyone who uh, who isn't a, a massive history fan, uh, ballistas are essentially giant crossbows. Yes, they absolutely. And interestingly, so there is a difference between a ballista and a scorpion, but it's to do with how the tension is provided to, to obviously fire the bolt or the rock. But I couldn't quite get my head around what that difference was. For all intents and purposes, they just look like big crossbows. Definitely don't want to be on the pointy end of one. No, absolutely not. And they, they do do some damage, which is where I have a joke written down in my notes, which is, I love the smell of a dismembered gall in the morning. 
a sort of a apocalypse now reference. Anyway, chapter 13, uh, we start talking about battering rams, which apparently, according to Vitruvius, were invented by the Carthaginians when they used a big beam to knock down a building when sieging Cadiz using only their hands. Yeah, not sure about that. I'm not sure you can call that an invention when it's basically a group of blokes with a big tree trunk smacking it against a wall. (laughs) Science, bitches. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like something that's been going on after a drinking session for hundreds of thousands of years. So, yeah, I'm not sure I trust Vitruvius on 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 that point. And actually, I did a wee bit of research. It looks like it was the Assyrians who were the first to use battering rams in a more conventional form. You know, something that was a construction that could be moved towards a wall and was protecting a swinging beam. The Assyrians also invented sort of basic siege towers as well. I think there's evidence of Syrian Assyrians using siege towers. But it seems to be that the Carthaginians were one of the first major Mediterranean powers that started developing these siege uh, engines. But it really seems to speed up this development during the reign of Alexander the Great and those that came after him. So we find out from Vitruvius that Cheres of Chalcedon developed the idea of the battering ram placed the beam beneath a frame that was covered in oxhide to protect the men who were working the ram. This seems to be quite common when we start, Vitruvius starts going into details about how to construct these pieces of siege equipment. Lots of oxhide surrounding them to protect the men. Philip II, who is a son of Alexander the Great, developed technology even further. And Vitruvius names three engineers who invented siege equipment for the Macedonians. I couldn't actually find much more information about these, so it could well be that these individuals are only referenced in this document. There's a chap called Diades, I presume is how you pronounce his name, and he invented movable towers that could actually be taken apart and carried, which I think is very, very useful. So there's a development there. The original IKEA? Yes, and um, as opposed to sort of building them on site, you actually had them constructed and you just took them wherever you like. God, imagine though, imagine you went to war and you got to the battlefield and you're like, right, get the towers together and you're missing this little screwdriver, the little the little metal Allen key. Yes, or you get the piece of paper out and it's you just can't understand it, cannot comprehend it. Or worse yep. still, you've put half of it together and then you realise that a couple of holes don't line up and you yep. can't get the bolt through. For want of a screwdriver, the war was lost. Yep, we're all going home. Sod the Indus, never liked it anyway. So these um, some of these siege towers sound very, very good. They sound like sort of Swiss Army penknives of military equipment. Some of them are so big, you can put cranes on top, other forms of scaling machines, borers as well are referenced here, presumably Hmm. devices that dig into the walls, bore into the halls, I don't know, I'd love to see what they look like. So yeah, very, very useful things. I just imagine them sort of like a giant Swiss army penknife opening a can of baked beans, I don't know, (laughs) pulling giant splinters out of the enemy's toes, I don't know, something like that. Um... One of the battering rams sounds absolutely incredible. It's got various levels where catapults and scorpions were placed. Um, And there's a whole area on the lower floor full of presumably barrels of water just in case it gets set alight. This piece of siege equipment is huge, really, really, really big and complex. And so when the Romans captured Greece after the Macedonian Wars, which took place between about 215 and 150 BC, they pinched a lot of this siege warfare and the siege warfare technology from the Macedonians. I, for one, am shocked that the Romans would steal technology, Tom. How very dare you? Yeah, what, Yeah, exactly. Stealing stuff from the Greeks, eh? The Romans would never do such a thing. No, absolutely not. Not their bag at all. Chapter 14, we get to hear about the tortoise, Sam, which seems to be some sort of device for filling ditches. 
Really? Yes. I thought I'd heard of the Roman tortoise before. Obviously, you've got the tortoise formation, which is the the legionaries all putting their shields over each other in, That's in the right. Roman army. Yeah. But I, I've also heard, wasn't there a tortoise which was like an early version of a tank? Or was that one of Leonardo's later inventions? I don't know. It could well be. I mean, you can see why a tank or other pieces of siege equipment would be called a tortoise because they're basically sheltered aren't they heavily armoured so people can shelter underneath them and it seems to be what this tortoise is for for sheltering people so that they can actually get close to walls potentially and I don't know start excavating maybe to try and undermine the walls interestingly Vitruvius mentions that the rawhide cover of the tortoise should be like a duvet so it should have two layers and it could be stuffed with seaweed or straw soaked in vinegar to repel fire, which I thought was quite interesting for anyone mm. out there wanting to build their own piece of siege equipment tomorrow over the weekend. Cover it in vinegar. Cover it in soak soak your rawhide in vinegar. There you go. <laughs> Sounds painful. Yes. <laughs> it's going to cause a rash. If you've been going down the slide too much at the playground, yeah, yeah. It could be that thrush that we were mentioning earlier, couldn't it? That bottom thrush. <laughs> uh, <laughs> soak it in vinegar. Chapter 15, we get a more specific tortoise. We get Hegetor's tortoise. So Hegetor of Byzantium was presumably an engineer, and he built a giant ram. The, the actual ram itself was about 55 metres long. So this is the beam that was swung into a, into sort of gates and buildings. 55 metres long. That's pretty bloody big. And it was suspended above like a pyramidal structure, that was shaped like a pyramid so that it could repel any ballistics being fired at it. The shape also allowed men to be underneath it and excavate again. So not only have you got this massive battery ram smacking against the walls, you've got people protected from ballistics underneath it, digging away, trying to, I don't know, trying to find potatoes. I don't know what they're doing. They're digging away underneath it. Yeah, well, you can, if you dig under the walls of a city, it's a much more efficient way of demolishing the walls than trying to knock them down from the top. Is that right? You sound like you've got first-hand experience of this, Sam. Whose walls well, have you been the... knocking over? <laughs> have you got some disputes? I apologise in advance to my next-door neighbours. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Just... Got some boundary disputes, have you, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's what they used to do in medieval times. To uh, You get the miners out, and the miners would dig under the walls of the castle and basically dig out the foundations. Yes. And uh, and, you'd, and you'd knock a hole in it. These were genius inventions, weren't they, though, These that they were coming up with here? They were kind of attacking from all angles. They're very advanced pieces of technology, and you can see, if you look at the archaeological evidence that, the, for example, the Assyrians had siege engines, so things like on their friezes, you can see the development. You can see how quite simple uh, siege equipment has developed through the Macedonians, through the Romans, into very, very advanced pieces of equipment. Um, and this Hegator's tortoise is a good example of that, a very advanced piece of equipment. It was controlled by about 100 men, and it weighed about 220 tons. Big bit of gear. Jesus, that is... That's enormous. Yeah, and it had levels for catapults and scorpions as well. That's like the size of a full wooden sailing ship. Huge. They're absolutely huge things. Interestingly, going back to a previous podcast, if you remember, the Colossus of Rhodes was built using siege equipment that had been left by... I'm trying to remember who it was. It might have been the Carthaginians again. I don't think... No, it was it was one of the wars post-Alexander the Great. One of the... Yeah, I think you were right. It was in the wars of the Didacti, I think. This siege equipment was obviously very, very advanced. On the subject of undermining walls, Sam, have you the, the phrase hoisted by your own petard? Did you know where that comes from? I, I actually do know where this comes from. Shall I ruin it for you? You know, ruin it. You have a go. Go on. You let people know. So as far as I'm aware, the petard was an early explosive 
device that was planted against the doors of a fortified building or castle. And what you'd do is you'd have someone, some brave poor bastard, would run up with this bomb covered in, I think, usually tar, and would stick it to the wall, light the fuse, and then run away. Now, to run with it safely and not fall over and, and break it or, or smash it, you would you would essentially tie it around your waist. And it was not uncommon for people to get entangled in the petard, this explosive device, after they'd lit the fuse, and to then be basically blown up <laughs> by there you go. this bomb attached to their own trousers. There you go. I, I, yeah, my understanding was very similar, because I, I thought the petard might have been the name of the actual fuse, and hoisted by your own petard was if you got hung by the, the, the string that was used as a fuse. But it's the same sort of principle. So that was that's Hegetor's tortoise. And interestingly, Sam, in this document, there are no references to trebuchets or mangonels. And that's because they weren't found in Europe up until, until much later, 5th or 6th century. And they were actually from China originally. So those designs were originally mm. from China. But you see them quite a lot in medieval warfare, don't you? The Romans had catapults, didn't they? But they just weren't these massive, great, big things. I think they did have catapults, absolutely, because um, because some of these chapters do talk about catapults. But I think mangonels are slightly different. And I think trebuchets are most certainly different. Trebuchets are very large items, aren't they, that sling rocks using yes. some form of gravity. <laughs> You're an engineer. <laughs> I struggle to explain the physics of it. But there you have it, Sam. So that's what I was reading this week. I was reading about Vitruvius and Vitruvius's engineering when it came to siege equipment and military artillery. Very good. And what an interesting man Vitruvius is. <laughs> he comes across as there's a subtext in this book, which is... <laughs> an erotic subtext. And a yeah, very, very, very erotic subtext. No, there's a, there's a subtext in this text which seems to be, you bloody don't know how important we engineers are. We're very important. Nobody ever bloody respects us engineers, but if it weren't for us, you'd never win any of your wars. So much like software engineers then. Yeah, exactly. He just comes across as a bit of a, a whinging nerd, to be honest. <laughs> a bit uh, Yes, interesting nonetheless. I have enjoyed reading Vitruvius on two occasions now for this podcast. Excellent. Well, Tom, I am going to steer away from the military for my story today. I decided very specifically to, because I wanted to talk, as I've said already, about the USSR and the Soviet Union, which is my favourite period of history. I just I just love it. But I wanted to stay away from the military side of things, because the Soviets... kind of. A lot of people who like military stuff know know a lot about the Soviet military and some of their stranger inventions, so I'm kind of keeping away from that. When you think about the Soviet Union, you kind of think about this overlooked, poverty-stricken, grey, concrete monolith of a time in which everyone disappeared for thinking thoughts they shouldn't, and everyone was a spy. And that's kind of kind of true. But... Let's be revisionists, Sam. <laughs> dis- well, no, it is... It is true. Everyone loved it in the Soviet Union. It was absolutely lovely. And everyone was really free to think what they like and do what they like. It was a lovely time. (laughs) Well, I'm not going to say that. But what I am going to say is that it wasn't quite as depressing as everyone thinks it was. The Soviets had lots of their own fun and games and toys. And some of the Soviet toys are really quite cool. And, and, you know, they had the first radio control cars, which would occasionally turn themselves off and run around the house uncontrollably when certain radio stations were tuned into. Nice. Not without their problems. And they had lots of other fun toys for kids, and they had little games consoles, which they basically copied off the Japanese. And But there was lots of stuff which was basically designed to make people's lives better. It wasn't all this massive military monolithic structure that you get in James Bond and Hunt for Red October and all of, and all of this kind of thing. There were an awful lot of people in the Soviet Union who were genuinely trying to create 
a better world for the citizens of the Soviet Union. But there was one big problem. There was a huge problem that the Soviet Union faced. And that problem was distance. It's such a big space. I mean, from Moscow to Vladivostok on the Trans-Siberian Railway, it's like a six-day journey, mm. which is from pretty much the west. In fact, it's not even the west of Russia. It's close to the west of Russia to the east coast. And it's about an eight-hour flight. And that's not even factoring in the, the rest of Eastern Europe or China or some of the socialist and communist countries in Southeast Asia and South America. So it's just a huge area to try and cover. Have you been on the Trans-Siberian Railway? It's my lifelong dream to do it. In fact, it's my lifelong dream to do it on horseback. <laughs> but that's slightly re- unrealistic, I fear. You, you, ha- <laughs> you have images of yourself as Indiana Jones, don't you, Sam? I've got images of myself as Putin. <laughs> Glorious images. Oh, oh, no, that's why you've got your Soviet gear in your cupboard, isn't it? You want to dress up like Stalin and ride your horse through Russia. Yep. Yes, I've been told that some of those long railway trips seem like a fantastic idea. But unfortunately, the the scenery is, gets quite repetitive. And there's one through the Australian outback that apparently is actually is quite dull, you know, because you just day after day, it's just actually the same scenery. Oh, look, another kangaroo. Yeah. Well, I have taken one very, very long train journey in my life, which was from Almaty in Kazakhstan to Moscow. Huh. And that was a five-day train journey. Wow. Uh, which I did with a friend many years ago now. I think it must be nearly a decade ago. So I did this journey with my friend and we booked a first class compartment, which we did because it meant that we wouldn't have to share, which we thought over five days of sharing with the locals was probably a bit too much cultural interaction for us. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) And it also meant that we had a, it was December at the time, and it also meant that our carriage had some proper central heating. Right. The central heating consisted of, there were two compartments right at the end of of the carriage. One was a toilet. I say a toilet. One was a hole. Yeah, good <laughs> leading fun onto though, the tracks. Because you, you're doing yep. a poo and it goes chuk 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 splat chuk 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 splat chuk chuk. Wow, that's the audio tapestry our audience are craving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's the teaser for this podcast right there. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, this this so this ex Soviet train had this this sex Soviet train. Whoa. <laughs> I had, you said that. <laughs> I had a toilet. Had a toilet, which was a cat, which was a which was a room with a hole in the floor. And next door, and I can't read Cyrillic, and so I made this mistake more than once. Next door was, was a just a room hole. that just had a. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll come on to that in a second. But next, the next door was the central heating room, and the central heating was just a fire <laughs> in a room with some piping heat heading up out of the ceiling. Nice. No boiler, no water. It was just a log fire in a room in the train. <laughs> Right, which was presumably a train made of wood. Unfortunately not, no. Okay, right. But the, the thing is, the, the toilet compartment did have a mirror, and the mirror had a hole in the middle where the right. secret camera had been taken out with two little bits of wire sticking out of it. Right. Every toilet in the train had had a camera fitted in the mirror. And this was during the, during the Soviet years? Uh, yeah, I assume so, yeah. Because it was a sex Soviet train. It was a sexy Soviet train, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And they just used to like looking at people having a poo. Oh. Yeah. Starlight Sex Express for oh. the train who shagged me. The train, oh, I see, we're doing, I see, we're doing Bond film titles that are yes. slightly rude. Or Thomas the Spank Engine, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think up one. Anyway, so yes, this was a five-day train journey, and we ran out of water after day one. 
Ooh. and it turns out that um, there was no water on the train and there was no water at any of the stations, so we literally drank nothing but vodka for four days. Right. And what sort of state were you in when you got there? Horrendous. <laughs> on, the, on this Soviet, pornographic Soviet drink train. A pornographic Soviet drink train is definitely the name of the third album from my conceptual jazz band. Um, and we were absolutely ruined by the time we got off the train. We weren't drunk. We were just in a fuzz, in a, in a kind of a fug. It's like we'd woken up after a massive bender and just, uh, where, where are we? What's happening? What is life? Why am I not dead? Could I please be dead? But anyway, yes. So the Soviet Union, to go back to the point I started making uh, 25 minutes ago now, the Soviet Union is very large. <laughs> yes, big, big place. How many football pitches? Uh, at least five. There were hundreds, thousands Five of Soviet... football pitches? <laughs> Fuck me. Inconceivable. Five Aussie rules football pitches. <laughs> Which is essentially as large as you want to make them. So they were all of these scientists who were basically trying to make the USSR a better place for people and, and to improve the economy. And a lot of the way that you did that was by trying to make the Soviet Union smaller in the same way that our world today has become very small we're talking to each other from different sides of the world as if we're in the same room except that i can't see you swinging your willy around you spin me right round baby right round <laughs> classic and the soviet union was obsessed with this idea of making the world smaller which is one of the driving reasons why they the space race kicked off and they launched sputnik in 1957 just to, to prove that satellite communication and satellite radio waves was a thing. And it's a few of the mad and brilliant ideas about making the Soviet world smaller I'm going to talk about today. The first is the Soviet internet. Right. The Soviets really did kind of invent the idea of the internet and the concepts of the internet and all of, a lot of the technology behind it. So the idea first came around in about 1959 with a scientist called Anatoly Ivanovich Kitov. He came up with a genius idea. He was working as the head of a secret computer research facility for the military and realised that this huge, kind of disparate, sparse Soviet economy could be run much, much more effectively if there was a big network of computers connecting every town and city. Instructions could be sent out and reports on production or the state of the city could be sent back. It would make planning much, much easier. Much better than the system of written post and shipping documents that were constantly getting lost or fudged by incompetent or corrupt bureaucrats at the time. In fact, the system that the Soviets had was so bad that in the 1959 census, a calculation error had added 4 million fictitious people to the population. Uh, so it was a really yeah. shit system that, sure they that had. Was, Are you sure that was an error? Sure that wasn't deliberate? Well, this is the thing. The Soviet Union was immensely corrupt. And for all kinds of reasons, siphoning public money, it was in the interest of people to add a few people to the population here or there, and that added up to about 4 million. So it was a, it was a really bad system, and mm. a computerised system would be really helpful. And even better, the network already existed in the form of a huge, huge, vast number of Soviet military and spy stations, which all had gargantuan computer mainframes and were connected by phone lines. Oh, so Kitov had the genius idea of hooking them all together and using the system which already existed at night when all the soldiers were asleep to do civilian things and to make the world better. It's absolutely genius. You've got all the equipment, you've got the technology, hook it together whilst people are sleeping and grow the economy. Fantastic idea. No extra cost, very little extra time. And so he wrote to the government outlining his plan, at which point the Soviet Union did its Soviet thing, and his message was intercepted by his bosses in the military, 
and the Secret Service, who were absolutely horrified at the idea of having to share their precious military infrastructure with dirty proletariat. And so they court-martialed him on trumped-up charges, arrested him in secret, and discharged him from the military after a spell in prison, with orders never to talk about any of this again. Good idea. Unfortunately, got stalin He disappears from history, does he? No, no, he, he survived. He, he survived. And I said he got stalin He it was This was after Stalin's death. He got Khrushchev'd. He did survive, um, but he was basically forced out of the public eye and, and his idea never got the attention that it deserved. Fair enough. But the idea didn't die, though, because there was another scientist called Mikhailovich Glushchev who formed a group of young researchers called the Cybertonia, in 1960 in Moscow and these guys were dedicated to an internet for the Soviet population. They planned an ambitious network of up to 20,000. Can you imagine that Tom? 20,000 computers in an internet of things which is something that we're really only getting to grips with today. So they were talking about connecting not just people and computers but connecting machinery in factories and connecting offices. Yeah, okay. So that everything would know exactly what everything else was doing and if the office of labor suddenly the computers there decided that they needed certain people or they needed something doing it would automatically send signals to an employment database in x place and you could you could pull people around where they needed really clever idea miles miles ahead of anything that was going on at the time they even had the first idea for a computer which a normal person could use my god you didn't need to know how to program to use it sci-fi absolute sci-fi Unfortunately, this idea was again scuppered. They had really good ideas, the technology was all there, but unfortunately this time it was actually the factory foreman who said, no, we can't do this. This is basically going to turn us into office jockeys and monkeys and all of the skills of being a factory foreman will will fall apart around us and and the computers can't do it. And so again, the idea got nixed. I mean, the factory foreman weren't wrong. They would have been turned essentially into office working drones, but <laughs> they put pressure on and got the, got the idea destroyed. And the Cybertonia group survived, uh, but essentially eventually became a little more than a performing arts society, putting on slightly embittered comedy shows about the future and, and very boozy parties for the scientifically minded. So essentially their, their great idea turned into some slightly bitter artists drinking heavily. That's quite a strange way to go, isn't it? It's a very Russian way to go. That's <laughs> quite a strange. That's quite a strange series of events. Yes, it's a very Chekhov way to go. I'm not entirely sure what happened in the interim to turn it from a group of great scientific minds into a group of drunk comedians, but something <laughs> happened. It's <laughs> a strange. Yes, I, I kind of skimmed over the history of the of the society a little bit. There is there's more there's more in the middle, but I think essentially what they wanted to do was to sell the idea of the future through performing arts and through the medium of dance yes <laughs> <laughs> as a soviet boff was there soviet comedy um oh yeah theatrical shows yes there films? was well the soviets incredibly into ballet the russians yes yes um yes. so so they treat ballet like we would treat community theater and a lot of ballet was quite subversive and a lot of theater was quite subversive uh, not necessarily anti-government but the the russians are, are great ones for commenting on social affairs and they're very dour and they're very kind of depressed if you've ever read any russian literature it's absolutely brilliant everyone dies uh, <laughs> particularly people who are successful die great or are lonely and very and, and old and decrepit and starve in their house once their wife's left them and so there was lots of kind of social commentary theater this kind of stuff and the russian sense of humor and the russian stand-up comedy is very much down that line as well 
So imagine jokes in which everyone dies and you've basically got Soviet culture. Hilarious. But they're really into it, performing <laughs> art. I love it. I think it's fantastic. So were there like underground comedy clubs during the Soviet Union? Oh, they weren't underground. They were, they, they were very popular. Very, go. very popular. And as long as you didn't slag off the government too much, Absolutely. you didn't slag off personalities within the government, then you could pretty much get away with most things, really. Fair enough. Certainly, uh, certainly after Stalin and after the process of de-Stalinization, it wasn't nearly as dangerous to just exist in the USSR. You could get away with a lot more. If you caused too much trouble, you'd still disappear. Sort of the equivalent of China today, I guess. There are a lot of parallels. Fair enough. Stick your head too far above the parapet, you'll get in trouble. But anyway, that was the Russian attempt at the internet, which was scuppered by the military and corrupt factory foreman. Um, The next one, which was actually a real raging success, was the first mobile phone network. And the Soviets actually invented the mobile phone as a concept. In 1963, a whole decade before mobile phones arrived in the West, they had a system called Altai, which was essentially a portable radio system that connected to the normal phone network via radio masts. And it worked for about 20 miles from the nearest radio mast, so a reasonable range. And the phones, if you think about 1980s mobile phones, these absolute bricks, these were actually pretty much the handsets were the size of a modern smartphone. Oh. So really small and compact. Obviously you needed a battery pack for them, which was somewhat brick-like. <laughs> Strapped to your back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Strapped to your back. But the handsets were really pretty small, and it took off massively. By 1965, so just two years after it was introduced, pretty much all large Soviet cities had an Altai service and phone boxes. It was initially designed for the government and emergency services first off, but pretty quickly spread towards the population. And... If you were anyone worth mentioning in the Soviet Union, you pretty much had a mobile phone a good decade before anyone in the West had them. Such a successful technology, it's actually still used today in some outlying parts of Russia. So they had that. And now we've got the mad stuff. Excellent. Rubbing my hands. Okay, hit me. I'm going to talk to you, Tom, about the Ekranoplan. The Ekranoplan. The Ekranoplan, which is my favourite Soviet mad invention. It's a plane that doesn't take off. Excellent. It's a stupid bloody idea. And what does the plane do? The Ekranoplan. The Ekranoplan. Well, it's actually a ship. Right. It's So it's a plane <laughs> that's a boat. It's a plane that's a boat. But it's not a seaplane, because that would be normal and exist. No. It's a boat plane. It's a boat plane, precisely, Tom. You're getting the hang of this. It's called a ground effect vehicle. A ground effect is basically a phenomenon which planes experience where as they come into land they start to naturally float a few feet above the ground. Oh, yes. So they push yeah. air down and, and the ground pushes air up. And so planes actually find it quite difficult to land. Landing's really hard, partly because the ground sort of pushes you back up again. Yeah, you notice that, don't you, when you're coming down to yeah. land in an airplane? Yeah. Absolutely. So it's supposedly quite an efficient way to travel. It's a bit like an air hockey puck going along. I was about to say it's like a hovercraft. It's a sort of, yeah. Sort of like a hovercraft. But... But looks much more like a plane. So supposedly it's a very efficient way of travelling. Well, it would have been a very efficient way of travelling if the Soviets hadn't turned it into one of the largest vehicles ever to fly with eight fuck-off massive jet engines strapped to it. Nice! This thing looks bastard mad. This is Mother Russia in a nutshell. It's got four massive engines on either wing, like a conventional airplane shape. Not even on the wing. They're strapped down the side of the bastard thing. So it just looks like a rocket. It sort of looks like a rocket with really 
short stubby wings. It's kind of like if you cross a Boeing 747 and Thunderbird 2. Basically picture a cross between a plane and a rocket. It's a rocket with really short stubby wings and eight jet engines that floats. <laughs> and how high off the ground was it floating? This incredible plane reached a lofty height of four metres above sea level. Oh, I see. So, of course, so it only went across sea. Uh, that's what I was thinking. What happens if it came yeah. into... If it went, oh, shit, a forest. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, fuck, we're stuck in this glade. So for obvious <sighs> reasons, with a maximum height of four metres, it could only go on the sea. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't very good in storms because it ask. would immediately crash into the waves. Yeah. But the Soviets loved these things. They built a couple. The first one was called the Caspian Sea Monster. What a name. Caspian Sea Monster. That sounds like something out of the Chronicles of Narnia, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? And this thing flew or or sailed. They did actually count as ships in the 1960s before eventually crashing in, the I think, the 1980s. And there was another one called the Lun, which flew in the 1980s and still exists. It's not used anymore, but it's it's still out there rotting in some in some Russian military base. What does the Lun mean? L-U-N. I don't actually know. The floater. Good question. The floater. <laughs> yeah. The speeding poo. <laughs> the poo that won't go away. <laughs> yeah. That could be a Bond film. The, <laughs> the turd that, that wouldn't, wouldn't flush. flush. Bowl finger. Push it down. But make sure you're wearing gloves. <laughs> so anyway, this thing. The advantage of this thing was that it was a ship that would do 250 to 400 miles an hour. Which sounds amazing. But then you realise it would be far faster if they just used a plane. And since it only had a range of about a thousand miles because it had eight ludicrously large jet engines on it, you'd actually go much further in a ship. So it was kind of the worst of both worlds. Uh, and obviously it didn't work in a storm and many, many other problems. It was kind of an interesting idea though because they were originally developed as high-speed emergency response vehicles. So essentially giant ambulances the size of a Boeing 747. And then the military got involved. So they were giant ambulances the size of a Boeing 747 which also had missiles and guns strapped to them. And, uh, and unsurprisingly, this idea didn't take off. But it was kind of an interesting idea to make the world a smaller place and to go across Soviet lakes and I've thought up some seas. more. Dr. Doctor, Doctor uh, Pooh. Yes? On Her Majesty's Secret Toilet. <laughs> the Man with the Golden Bum. Um, yes? A Pooh Raker. <laughs> yes? Yes? <laughs> <laughs> License to flush. Uh, Octoflushy. Octoflushy. Uh, Bumfall. Flush another day. <laughs> <laughs> flush another day. I like that. Sorry, Sam. I, I interrupted what you were trying That's to do, right. which was uh, construct a sensible podcast. <laughs> I'm nearly done. I was just going to give an honourable mention right at the end as well to the Soviet Concorde. Concordski. It was actually called Concordski. It was called Concordski by the West because it looked an awful lot like Concorde. Right, right, right. And right. the reason it looked an awful lot like Concorde is because the Soviets stole quite a lot of designs for Concorde. <laughs> is that right? And so they they stole the original designs and then thought they stole some of the designs. Yeah, and and actually. The, and there's rumours, long believed rumours, that actually the designs that the Soviets stole for the Russian version of Concorde, which was properly called the Tupolev Tu-144. Catchy. That actually they were deliberately, they had deliberate errors in them, these designs, to make the plane either unflyable or uneconomical for the Soviets. And they, 
it was a genius idea, the Soviet plane. It was slightly different from Concorde. It was faster, it was bigger, and it actually flew six months beforehand, so it flew before Concorde did. Unfortunately, it was an absolutely hellish place to be inside. Right. The air conditioning was tied into the engines, which were very, very close to the passenger compartment, and it was so loud that you couldn't speak to the person sitting next to you. Not always a bad thing if anyone's been on a long-haul flight. Step next to well, no. But the only way to communicate with anyone, including the air hostesses, was with a pen and paper. And sitting in the back seats was so loud that it could cause permanent hearing damage over the course of a flight. Yeah, okay. It was about as loud being in this thing as sitting on a motorbike at full revs. You've basically described travelling with children, Sam. <laughs> yes. That's <laughs> a long so. flight with two young children, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, fortunately, unlike most long-haul flights, it was very unreliable. It had a tendency for the engines to explode and was made with experimental metalwork techniques, which were very, very advanced and made for an absolutely stunningly beautiful plane, uh, but also made it fall apart in mid-air. In the 1973 Paris Air Show, one crashed after a French fighter jet that was sent up to spy on it uh, surprised the pilot, who wasn't expecting to see it there. He panicked and put the plane into a dive to avoid this French spy plane. And when he tried to pull up, the plane literally fell apart in midair. So where was this show? This was the Paris Air Show in 1973. So why an air show did they decide to spy on one of the planes that was invited to the air show? Presumably there were a lot of people on the ground also spying at it who had paid money yes. to sit. I think what they wanted to do was to see how it was controlled in, in mid-air and at high altitude. Not very well. So they sent up this plane <laughs> to see how the control services worked. And apparently, yes, not very effective it was, it was the answer. It just broke up in mid-air at the mildest of surprises. So, so not, a, not a greatly successful design. But actually, it flew for a very long time. After the fall of the Soviet Union, NASA bought a couple of them. And, uh, and flew them until 1999. It got abandoned pretty quickly as a passenger plane because it was just unbearably loud. Uh, but flew freight for several years afterwards and, and NASA eventually took it over. So anyway, Tom, that's just a few of the Soviet inventions that never quite made it to try and bring the world a little closer together and make life a little bit more bearable for the Soviet citizens. Very interesting. What did NASA do with this? Concordia or whatever, Concordski. So because it was much bigger than Concord and had a much larger kind of capacity for, for cargo and scientific experiments, NASA used it for high altitude, high speed, atmospheric experiments. Very good. There we go. The strange and wonderful world of inventions. Excellent. There's a restaurant near where I live in Christchurch. I, I don't think I've mentioned, mentioned this to you before, but I have slight ethical issues with it. It's a Chinese street food restaurant called Komi. Called Commie. Called Commie. C-O-M-M-I. <laughs> and oh, nice. I the like graphics that. on the side of the building are straight out of the Cultural Revolution. I'm just amazed that they're getting away with it. I'm just amazed that nobody has picked up on the fact that it's actually slightly offensive. It would be like having... Is it though? Is it offensive? Would you have a restaurant called Fascismo with pictures of goose-stepping Italian troops? I'm pretty sure in Russia that's a thing. <laughs> serving Italian food. You know, what I think is one of the nicest ironies is right next door to it, completely unassociated, they're not owned by the same people, is a pub, a craft beer pub called Moon Underwater, ah. which our literary fans will know is the name of the pub in George Orwell's 1984. So I think there's a wonderful irony there of Moon Underwater being next to this commie Chinese restaurant sort of celebrating... A cultural revolution almost interesting juxtaposition 
pint and a pad thai. I'll have a pint and a pad thai, please, mate. Really? Do you think you get pad thai at this Chinese street food restaurant? Well, it's a noodly thing, isn't it? It all looks <laughs> like a show to me, sir. You know, you know what I'm saying? Well, truly, truly, Tom, it is that restaurant that has been culturally insensitive. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Well, I think that pretty much wraps us up, doesn't it? Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I think we're just going to take a moment now to decide what we're going to talk about next week, and then we'll let you get on with your day. What do you want to talk about next week, Tom? Oh, I don't know. What should we talk about next week? I did have some ideas. Go on. I cannot remember what those ideas were, though. Yes, I can. Religions. Religions. I like religions. Less well-known religions that have graced God's earth. Which God? But yes, yes let's exactly. do it. Exactly. Perfect. Well, if you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do tell your friends about it. Share it on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for That Was Genius, and you will find us one way or another. And we'll be back next week with a thrilling instalment of religion. You forgot to ask for reviews as well. Oh, yeah, review us. Oh, no, you, you ask. You ask for reviews. Sharing is caring. We'd love to have some reviews from you because that, you know, people then look at the reviews and they read them and they go, oh, that sounds good. And then they'll listen. That's how it works. They will. Yeah. So do that too. And whilst you're doing that, Tom's going to go to bed. I'm going to get on with my day. And you live your best life, dear audience. <laughs> we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.